Today on episode number 396 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Amy Lynch Binyik joins me to talk about contingency and pedagogy. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Amy Lynch Binyek works on writing pedagogy, literacy studies, and labor studies. Her book, Contingency, Exploitation, and Solidarity, Labor and Action in English Composition, is a co-edited anthology with Seth Kahn and Bill Lalicker that explores the ways and means of labor reform on college campuses. She's published in CCC, Teaching English in the Two-Year College, and Academic Labor, Research and Artistry. She's a former editor of NCTE's forum, Issues About Part-Time and Contingent Faculty. Amy, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. It's great to be here. You know that expression about how people slide into one another's DMs? Absolutely. So you didn't slide into my DMs, you slid into my tweets. <laughs> fairly, <laughs> fairly recently, a former guest on the show, Alex Chavrin Vignette, was responding to my request of who might have advice specific to people who are part of the contingent workforce. And we'll talk about how complicated it is to even use a name for that. But you were the first person to come up. And I just regard her so highly that I instantly reached out. And I just want to say thanks for being here to have this conversation today. Oh, it's an honor. And I feel so honored that she recommended me as well. I admire her work. So let's get that part out of the way, though, because we're it's naming things. So would you talk about the 2,700 different ways we might be talking about, you know, around this particular set of ways we talk about this part of the workforce? And I even hate saying the word workforce, but yes. No, absolutely. Um, you know, names matter. And I think there's a lot of sensitivity for good reason around the words that we use when we talk about contingency. I tend to use contingent because it works as a blanket term to describe a lot of different positions, but we we don't have really agreed upon terminology in the United States We to describe people who are working off the tenure track. So you'll hear, hear people say non-tenure track faculty, for instance, but that isn't perfect either because it emphasizes a lack, right? It, it suggests that you are less than for not having tenure, mm-hmm. right? We use adjunct And some people use that to mean simply part-time, but others don't. It's often used um, in my state system, for instance, to describe people with full-time contracts. We use lecturer and visiting. Uh, In other countries, they'll use things like sessional faculty or contract faculty. So we've got lots of different terms, and I tend to use contingent. And in addition to having lots of different terms... We also have just lots of different situations. So what kinds of things come to mind for you just even trying to talk about this group? It's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. It's a lot. You know, there's a a great 
a professor and writer, and I follow her on Twitter, Paula Patch, who likes to remind me that we have to be careful when we talk about contingent faculty, that we're not just kind of um, discussing people who are all vulnerable or unhappy in their positions. There are some very good full-time non-tenure track positions. They're contingent in that they are not eligible for tenure, that they might have multi-year contracts or even, you know, one or two or three-year contracts, but they might come with benefits and they might be positions that those faculty are very happy to be in. Those aren't the majority of positions, though. We do have a remarkable amount of part-time faculty in higher education. In fact, non-tenure track or contingent faculty make up 70% of the workforce in higher education. Uh, and that, so that's everything from someone who might be a visiting professor for a year to someone on a multi-year contract with benefits to someone who's working at three different universities cobbling together enough classes to make rent. And I know we're going to be talking a lot about how contingency can impact pedagogy, but I'd like you to take me back a little bit first to how you first got into teaching in general. Absolutely. I come from a teaching family. My, uh, my father was a high school English teacher for 35 years. My husband's a teacher and his father uh, was a teacher. And so I, I began as a high school English teacher. And like my father, because I wasn't making much money as a high school English teacher, I decided to begin adjuncting at the local community college in the evenings, you know, for some extra cash. And after about three and a half years of teaching high school, I just found myself more and more drawn to those evening classes. I loved it and decided that that was what I wanted to do. And so I quit my high school job and I started adjuncting at three different universities. I was the freeway flyer, as it's called, for many years. I had lots of different contracts and eventually returned to school to get my PhD and really lucked into the position I have now. I'm a tenured full professor at Kutztown University, and it was, it was a lot of luck. I don't pretend it was anything else. So I'm very fortunate to to have the job I do. Would you share a little bit more about your dad? Yeah, you know my my dad is kind of my teaching role model, and uh, also kind of the source of the my interest in labor. He was a union organizer, not just of his own school, but he was one of the founders of the Scranton Diocese Association of Catholic Teachers, unionizing Catholic schools in Pennsylvania. And so I spent many nights as a child sitting at uh, union meetings at my kitchen table <laughs> on my dad's lap. I walked strike lines with him and learned a lot about labor relations and you know how those intersect with, with teaching and how important thinking about the material conditions of your job are to being able to teach well. Mm. And as you recall on those early lessons that you can remember, where do you see them bubbling up in new ways or perhaps even familiar ways, but, but maybe even amplified ways? Oh, goodness. I don't know. I, it's just been such a part of me for so long. I think the thing that has stuck with me and become most ingrained in who I am as a teacher is that I really believe that to be a teacher in the, in the 20th and now the 21st century, we have to also be a bit of an activist in some way. 
we, you know, our, we see that education has been gutted in terms of budgeting, both in K-12 and in higher education. So it becomes more and more difficult for us to do our jobs well. And we have to, as teachers, find ways, K-12 and higher ed, to advocate, not just for ourselves, but for our students, for our campuses, for our classrooms. You know, when we have high school teachers having to buy supplies to take into their rooms. That's something that hits me every fall when you see these wish lists pop up on Twitter and on Amazon, right? Where teachers are saying, help me buy books for my classroom. That's something that comes back to me again and again, that if we're going to do our jobs well, we have to find ways to advocate for better for the whole system. Well, and you're reminding me of that prolific, (laughs) maybe prolific's the wrong word, you're reminding me a little bit of that Twitter thread that just people kept coming and responding to. And that was a lot of it. Yes, please, you know, explore these issues. But also, can we talk to those of us that are not in such precarious positions for our roles and responsibilities to use our voices and our advocacy well? What comes to mind for you that you'd want to make sure that 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 people are really advocating for toward this, toward this community of more contingent workers. You know, I've often said that the only way I can rationalize being a kind of a privileged tenured professor in this system is to use my service and my research and whatever else I can to advocate for better. And I think what we have to do is look at our own campuses and pay attention to how we're treating the most vulnerable of our faculty. Think that's really important. And what's really important there too is that we're speaking with and not for. That's something I, I remind myself of regularly. I think people in my position sometimes put ourselves in this kind of savior position. I am going to charge in and fix everything. I think it's important that we talk to contingent faculty on our campuses and find out what they need because it is very local, mm-hmm. it is very different from campus to campus what conditions are like, and what people want. So I would encourage people to begin advocacy by listening, Mm. by asking questions of the people who need them, and just really listening. So I know there's a number of ways where your research has shown a distinct impact, a distinct uh, context for the contingency workforce, and one of them has to do with time. And I know that specific to the writing discipline, there's a lot that you have to share in terms of the time. So I'm just going to ask you to reflect a little bit about how time comes in as a unique challenge here. Absolutely. You know, I find, especially as a writing teacher, I bring that perspective to it because I'm a compositionist. You know, so many contingent faculty are teaching far bigger loads than a typical tenure line faculty is. They might be teaching one or two classes at a university, but they might be teaching six or eight classes entirely across several in order to make ends meet, right? And so time is of the essence. They have far more students than I do every semester, and they're spending time on the road. And so as like a writing teacher, I think about the best practices or the the things that I see have a high impact in my classroom and how much time those require of me. So for instance, when it comes to writing, feedback is of the essence. I try to give detailed feedback to all of my students on every assignment. And when you are 
multiplying that six classes, eight classes with 25, 35 students per class, the amount of time you can dedicate to that shrinks significantly. We know know it's one of the most high impact things you can do is give students that personalized feedback, but we're reducing it very often to shorthand or saying, all right, I can only give the student three comments because then I have to move on. Or I have to use kind of a bank of comments where I copy and paste. I don't have time to personalize it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's one way. And as you think about that, I know that we need to be addressing these systemic issues. Yeah. So I don't want to paper over that. Any advice for people at the individual level? For how, <laughs> I mean, it, to, to address the reality of where we stand today. <sighs> you know, I... I don't have great advice to how, how to, to be the best you can while also teaching eight classes. <laughs> yes, you know? yes. it's, it's hard because, you know, I have given professional development sessions to my own faculty about managing time better, but we're all working, you know, on the same kind of schedule. We have a 4-4 load because um, uh, I'm a teaching focused university. It's hard. I would say that, you know, be kind to yourself. I think, you know, early on in my career when I was teaching across multiple places, I stayed up into the wee hours trying to personalize that feedback and and do every project draft justice. And I I wasn't getting sleep. I I was getting all stomach ulcers instead. So I, you know, my best advice is to be kind to yourself and know that you can only do the best you can in the time you have. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I find one thing that's incredibly helpful is find yourself a good screencasting tool Mm. that automatically, when you stop recording, puts the link in your clipboard. Oh, nice. The other thing that I've been motivated by prior guests and the books that I've read about teaching writing, I'm not an expert, but more feedback is not necessarily better. So catching every grammatical error that I mean, that that's not, oh. you know, I think people have a misnomer that if I don't catch it, then they'll never yeah. learn where the comma goes or whatever. And so oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because I don't equate feedback to copy editing. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would, I would, I tell all teachers do not copy edit. That is not teaching writing. Yeah. You know, that feedback for me is about the content. It's about um, speaking back to the student as a thinker and a writer. And, you know, copy editing is something we can do together in class time. And that's where they're going to learn to do that. They're not going to learn to copy edit by me doing that. And that is a mistake I made early on. I did spend time copy editing all those drafts as well, which is another reason I was up until 2 a.m. Yeah, don't copy edit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the other one that I want us to spend a little bit of time on has to do with student evaluations. What have you found through your research is particularly important for us to consider with this context? Yeah, there's a lot of great studies out there that talk about some of the problems of student evaluations generally, right? And the validity of them. They don't tend to tell us very accurately about a student's or about a teacher's teaching. They often reflect more what grade the student got in the class or believes they're going to get. And there's been some studies too that show that they are often very sexist and racist as well. And we know that the, the majority of contingent teachers are women. So the sexism angle is very important. But 
One of the things about the contracts that many contingent professors are on is that they are often dependent upon, their renewal is dependent upon good student evaluations. There's very little else. Now, again, not true across the board. There are some positions that have very detailed application processes uh, to have contracts renewed, but for the vast majority of them, it's, well, what are their student evaluations look like? And if that is the difference between my renewal or not, you can bet I'm going to try to teach in a way that's going to get those student evals up, right? So I, I think that's, uh, that's natural. That's normal, right? So there, there, there might be a tendency to do some teaching towards the student eval in mind, which is not necessarily the, the ideal pedagogical motivator. Mm-hmm. And do you have guidance for people in terms of student evaluations? I should also, before you answer, I should also mention that we do have a whole episode, I'll link to it in the show notes, about how we could more proactively provide other data points if the institution's not having these kinds of conversations. Yeah. And so again, I'll link to that. That's with VG Sathy and Kelly Hogan talking about some of the problems, but also then what are other ways that we might gather data that could possibly provide an additional lens beyond just the course evaluations? But please, um, by all means, share whatever that you'd like to on this. You know, I think it's it's really useful to know your contract well and to know the, the policies of your department or your campus well to find out what else you can provide. It's also, in, in a lot of places, a professor can provide a letter to provide context that goes along with student evaluations and respond to them. And I would say absolutely do that. So yeah, and in addition to the things I'm sure you talked about in, in that episode, you know, knowing, knowing the rules of your own campus can be beneficial as well. And I think also just uh, also talking with your students about the purposes of student evaluations is useful too, giving them context for what these are and why they are. Mm -hmm. Students don't necessarily know much about the inner workings of higher education and what their purpose is. So I think they might take them more seriously or treat them a little differently with some of that context. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd, I'd love to have you share a little bit about some of your own activism. And also, I know you're not alone in this. Would you talk a little bit about some of the ways that people are trying to resist and trying to um, create change in this area? Yeah, I think there's there's lots of different ways to you know, get your feet wet if you're interested in, in uh, taking this on. And you have to find something that kind of works for you and, and you're comfortable with. You know, personally, I've, I've, I've looked to imbue labor issues into any service or committee work I'm doing on my campus. So I am that person who, it doesn't matter if it's the curriculum committee or the, you know, campus beautification committee, I'm going to find a way to ask about, you know, how is there parity or equity here for our non-tender track faculty members? <laughs> I'm finding a way to bring that up. So, you know, activism doesn't have to just be like standing on a strike line or, uh, signing a petition, although it can be those things. It can be asking questions about, you know, why aren't our contingent faculty invited to the department meeting? Mm -hmm. You know, um, asking why their expertise isn't a part of a conversation about a curriculum revision, you know, which is often the case. I mean, these are teachers who dedicate themselves to, like, for instance, in my discipline, 
most of first year composition is taught by contingent faculty, right? They have remarkable facility with these classes, so many years of experience, and yet on most campuses, they're not included in discussions about curriculum revision or design. Oftentimes they're just sometimes even just given a syllabus and a textbook and a list of assignments. They're not even asked. You know, so their expertise is ignored. So you know, being that person in your department who says, why aren't we tapping in to that expertise? You know, ask those hard questions. Those are, I think, small ways that, that we can be activists. There's certainly other ways, for sure. I could talk way too long about that. If <laughs> yeah, well, one of the things that you sent me in advance is a specific re- resolution. Did you want to share a little bit about that? Because it might, I realize it's geographically specific, but I'm sure that there's tons of parallels. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, one of the professional organizations in my field is, is the 4Cs, the Conference on college composition and, and communication. And uh, at our annual conference one year in, in, in Indianapolis, Indiana, a group of us were part of a, a kind of an organization within the organization called uh, the Labor Caucus. And uh, we came together and wrote this resolution to bring to the business meeting at the professional organization, really asking for our professional organizations, plural, not just the four C's, but others as well, kind of take labor seriously. And there's, you can Google Indianapolis resolution and, and uh, find out more about it if your listeners want to. But it's, it, that's another thing we can do is ask our professional organizations to make changes. And in that particular resolution, I won't get into all the nitty gritty of it, but we, we made some asks that were kind of very practical and material. And we've seen some of that come to fruition. For instance, now that organization, the four C's, has a labor liaison who is a, a contact person in that organization so that contingent faculty members or any faculty members who have questions about labor issues can reach out and, and have someone who cares and get answers, right? There is at the Council for Writing Program Administrators, they now have a like an archive online of all sorts of labor-related resources for folks. And that kind of was independent to the Indianapolis resolution, but, cut, but intersected with it at some point as well. So we can make asks of our professional organizations. I've, I've started going to the Modern Language Association conference and, and trying to understand how that organization's governance system works, mostly so that I can kind of infiltrate it and start asking annoying labor questions. <laughs> <laughs> so that's another way that we can be activists is to ask more of our professional organizations. And before we get to the recommendation segment, would you share about other types of university policies that affect this part of the teaching community? Absolutely. I think a couple of things come to mind. One of them is even something as simple as, you know, whether or not you will accept late work. This one just got hammered home. That may seem really small, no, uh, no, but it's, it's a policy on your syllabus. Right. And I saw someone on Twitter. I just retweeted them. I think it was like two days ago who was noting how more and more people are saying, Oh, we should take late work. Every teacher should take late work. And his response was, or her, forgive me, I don't know. Their response was, uh, yeah, unless you teach 150 students across six or seven classes, then I, I can't do that. I'm glad you can. 
but I have way more students than you do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or my colleague, Sandy Leonard at Kutztown, she wrote a really excellent piece about plagiarism policies and how oftentimes, you know, pedagogically how, you know, I might treat that as a tenured faculty member, a contingent faculty member might not have that same feeling of confidence, for instance, you know, in a writing class, if a student plagiarizes in a first draft or even a final draft, I often treat that as a a teaching moment. It's the end of the semester. It's a little different, but it's a teaching moment. And we talk about how did this happen? And, you know, uh, we talk about patch writing and all sorts of things. And, And there's a chance to do again. But our university policy says that I'm supposed to write that person up and fill out an official form and report them to the dean. And, you know, one of the things Sandy said was, well, if you are on a you know, semester semester contract and you can be let go at a moment's notice, you can't necessarily ignore a university policy for your own pedagogical reason. You don't want to be called out on that. And there's that worry, right? So where I see this as a teaching moment, another teacher might see it as a trap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, well, I better report that student. Even something like incomplete grades. My union is discussing right now in its adjunct committee whether or not our adjunct faculty feel comfortable giving grades of incomplete when they may not be back next semester to finish that, right? Who takes it up? Mm-hmm. So do they ever give those grades, right? So that affects pedagogy as well, right? There are lots of times where I encourage students uh, to take an incomplete because they're struggling and there might be something really important happening in their lives. And I know they could finish this course if they have the time, but if I'm not going to be employed here next semester, who's going to work with them to get that work in? Who's going to assess it? Even thinking more pedagogical and less policy. You know, I did a study that showed, it, it was a small case study, but it showed that contingent faculty were less likely to feel free to choose their own textbook for a class, even if they were given that freedom, right? So the the WPA says, we recommend these two or three texts, but you can choose what you like. Most of the the teachers that I talked to always took the recommendation, even if they didn't like the text. Mm -hmm. You know, one teacher said to me, I used it for seven years before I finally picked something else. And I said, why? And uh, her answer was, well, I didn't want to insult the people hiring me. It seemed risky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So even feeling free to choose, choose the right text. Or, you know, I've been, oh, I've been so excited lately about the ungrading wave. I'm on board. I've adopted it. I'm excited about it. But I know there are some contingent faculty. Again, it's different. Everybody's culture, campus culture is different. Some are very much afraid of adopting, you know, what to some seems a kind of far out approach that might be contrary to what their department chair or their WPA thinks is acceptable. They don't want to, as one teacher said to me, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to draw any attention to myself because I'm here semester to semester. Mm -hmm. So how, how, you know, these are people who want to do really progressive things in their classroom. But their employment status very often makes that precarious. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And I've got to tell you, Amy, it's one of those things 
It is an absolute joy during this pandemic to just get completely enveloped in something. And a colleague told me about a TV show, and it's a colleague who hardly ever watches TV. So if she does, it's going to be something good. And I had to take her seriously. And not to mention the fact that then this particular piece of entertainment contained Steve Martin, who I have just loved Steve Martin for such a long time. And Martin Short. And I mean, on and on it went. And so I would like to recommend a TV show that I watched the entire season of faster than I've watched anything in a really, really long time. So the show is called... Only Murders in the Building, and it is featuring Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez, as well as a whole bunch of other great cast. And it's both a comedy and a drama at the same time about, and it kind of cracks me up too, because there's a podcasting element to it. All the different people get connected with each other because they all listen to one of those true crime podcast series. And so they they realize that each other listens through whether they see them, you know, (laughs) listening to it um, with their headphones or whatever that is. So they all get connected, but they're very different people, very, very different people. And so it's got a podcasting element. It's got, like I said, some tremendous actors. It made me laugh, but it also made me just wonder what was going to happen next. It was, it's just absolutely delightful. So I cannot recommend it enough And I'll be linking to that in the show notes. Again, it was only Murders in the Building. Highly recommend. All right, Amy, I'm going to pass it over to you now for your recommendation. Okay, since uh, you went with something that is in this difficult time allowing us to escape into something else, then I'm going to go with a nerdy recommendation. Everyone who knows me knows that I am a big nerd. I play Dungeons and Dragons (laughs) for the past Oh gosh, 20 some years now. And I have been watching a what they call a live play Dungeons and Dragons show, Dimension 20 the Seven. And it is a group of uh, seven women playing Dungeons and Dragons together. The game is run by a man, but everyone else is a woman. And they're just having the best, silliest time telling a story together. And it is funny and it's exciting and it's ridiculous and it is exactly this escapism that I need after a long day at work and listening to the news and thinking about oh everything that's going on right now that is uh, the seven dimension 20. (laughs) And do you have I think you might have a couple you're holding back on us you think that you don't have enough time and I know you have more. We've got time, Amy. This was oh. just, this was only us just getting started. Okay. So yeah, I can show like all the layers of my nerdery. Because <laughs> when you said we were going to give recommendations, I thought, oh, I've got so many things that I love so much. You mentioned podcasts. I'm a big podcast fan. And I've been listening to SciShow Tangents from Hank Green for lots of science nerdy stuff. I love it. Uh, It's very fun. Just three people talking about science facts on a theme for like half an hour because I am a science nerd. My husband's a chemistry teacher, despite being an English teacher. So that's very fun. You got more for us. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I mean, yeah, I also during, during lockdown and the many many days spent in the house. My husband and I rediscovered playing video games together and we've been playing Elder Scrolls online. So, you know, when I'm not playing Dungeons and Dragons, I'm uh, 
I'm online in a video game pretending to be a rogue and like shooting arrows. So that's very fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, I warned you that I'm a nerd. I've been playing um, Dungeons and Dragons with some uh, English professors online too and learning how to do that. And that's been fun. Well, I'm going to recommend something to you, but other people yeah. will hear me recommending it. But I, I don't recommend things officially that I haven't tried. Yeah. But I'm just for you... I'm thinking anyone who's listening who might be in a position to buy you some sort of a gift for some occasion, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. So Jesse Stommel, who's been on the show many, many times in the past, his husband made just recently these amazing Dungeons and Dragons. I think they're called dice, but I mean, they looked absolutely yes. beautiful. You've seen them? Beautifully hand carved. I mean, they look incredible to me. I I haven't played Dungeons and Dragons since I was probably ten years old. So, <laughs> I mean, I literally wanted to buy them just because I thought they were so beautiful. So here's what's exciting: is Jesse is one of the professors who's just joined our game. <laughs> oh my gosh, the yeah, connections yeah. just are limitless here. This is so fun. <laughs> well, so so I will be linking to Jesse Stommel's. What do you call them? Di Dice. Dice. Um, dice. Yeah. You roll dice in, in Dungeons and Dragons. Yep. And and I'll put it in the show notes, but I won't personally be recommending them because I haven't tried them out for myself. But yes, <laughs> anyone who plays Dungeons and Dragons um, definitely would be like the thing. Yes. A lot of professors play. You'd be surprised. There's a lot of us out there. <laughs> mm, I absolutely love it. Well, Amy, I am so glad to be connected with you. And this has been just a delightful conversation. Thank you for your sensitivity to me, just in terms of feeling ill-equipped to have this conversation. You were you went very gentle on me. <laughs> oh, no, this was a pleasure. And thank you for uh, the opportunity to talk more about this important issue. Yeah, I hope we can continue the conversation because I know that there's a lot more that you could share with your research and also specific to the discipline of... Um, developing people's writing skills. So thank you so much. I would love to. Thank you. My sincere thanks once again to Amy Lynch Binyak for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you'd like to head on over to the show notes, they're probably already in your podcast player. If you swipe left or swipe right or up or down, depending on the app, or you can head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash 396. And if you'd like to not have to remember to do that every time and you want to receive those show notes in your inbox once a week, head over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. That will subscribe you to my weekly update and you'll receive the show notes and also other recommendations that aren't talked about on the podcast, some quotable words and other good sources like that. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.